from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Ryan Wisnor. And I'm Joshua Justice. We're fast approaching the end of our time with Beyond Footnotes. As Joshua graduates and I'm completing my thesis, we've decided to pass on Beyond Footnotes to someone who will be sticking around the university, who can keep their finger on the pulse of the history department, and who can tap into the wealth and knowledge that comes from the minds of the faculty and students here. So we'd like to introduce Robert Campbell. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Hey, Ryan. Uh, so this is my first year at PSU, and um, I've been shadowing the show for a couple weeks now, and uh, I'm super excited to take over for you guys. Excellent. We're glad to have you with us, and now on to the show. The oceans remain one of the last uncharted places on Earth. Despite regular expeditions from oceanographic organizations, we've explored less than 5% of the world's oceans. Species are regularly discovered, but the vastness of the sea means that many times these species go on scene again for years. So it's not hard to imagine that in 1961, only decades after Cousteau and Ichak had revolutionized the art of diving, that the orca, despite its prominent place in modern culture, would be a mystery to the scientific community and to the general public. Today, we discuss the first successful orca whale capture by Marine Land of the Pacific. While the whale, Wanda, didn't survive long, her capture caught the imagination of entertainers and the interest of the scientific community, thus setting in motion a transformation of the orca's public image. Taylor Billies, a first-year master's student of history at Portland State University, he's writing his thesis on the history of killer whale captures and studying animal and environmental history, as well as the history of the 20th century Pacific Coast. Taylor also holds a BA in political science from Otterbein University. Prior to moving to Portland to pursue his MA, he worked at Farm Sanctuary, a rescue facility in Northern California that cares for abused and abandoned farm animals. Taylor is currently an intern at the Pacific Historical Review and will be serving as the Caroline P. Stoll Editorial Fellow for the 2016-2017 academic year. Thanks for joining us, Taylor. Welcome to Beyond Footnotes. It's wonderful to be here. So maybe to begin, can you tell us a little bit about what the public perceptions and scientific understanding of orcas was prior to 1961? Well, prior to uh, orcas becoming you know, an animal that was sought for capture in these uh, marine entertainment facilities, perceptions of the animal were colored by uh, what whalers and early explorers had observed. One of the most important books that was written in the late 19th century was by Charles Melville Scammon who was a whaler, um, a naturalist, and he published um, a book called uh, Marine Mammals of the Northwestern Coast of North America in 1874. And he based his observations on, you know, what he had seen out on whaling voyages. And he writes of the killer whale as being this, this savage animal that is spreading terror and death among the mammoth baleen whales, which is, of course, what whalers were, were after uh, at the time. He even writes that the killer whales were stealing from whalers which, you know, would have probably scared many, uh, many seamen at the time. Uh, but, you know, as they're bringing the, the huge baleen whale up to the ship, the killer whale pack or pod is coming and ripping it down and bringing it down into, into the depths of the sea, which is what he writes. Um, so they're, they're almost taking on a mythological status as this kind of sea monster. And as far as um, 
scientific perceptions are concerned, Scammon wrote that he thought there were actually three distinct species of killer whales based upon their size and color. Um, but we know now today that what he was describing was adult males, which have the massive six-foot dorsal fin, um, junivile males who, of course, have a smaller dorsal fin and are a bit smaller than the adult males, and then, of course, the third species, or what he thought was the adult female. And so um, as far as perceptions are concerned, they're pretty much villainized. And then the next watershed moment is the first Antarctic expeditions that go on during um, the early 1900s, where this is really the first time that um, Europeans and Americans are encountering killer whales up close. And um, they're writing about how these animals are a constant threat and a constant anxiety to them because they had seen killer whales hunting seals down in, in the ice flows. And what they do is they would, if they found a seal on top of an ice flow, they'd all kind of in unison swim together and create a wave and topple that ice flow over so they could get the seal. And um, Ernest Shackleton, who was one of the, the early explorers um, in Antarctica, was, he wrote a piece in, uh, for the papers at the time of three men that had gotten caught on top of an ice flow and uh, feared for their lives that the killer whales that were circling around them were going to try and do the same thing that they were doing to the seals. So, of course, I'm thinking of this really amazing uh, newspaper article at the time that says, you know, the terror of the Antarctic, a man-killing whale, even though killer whales had not been documented to actually kill uh, human beings. There were no documented sightings of that. But still, it, it got portrayed as a man-killer. And that leads me to my question about the general public. I mean, someone that's living in a landlocked state of the United States and maybe had never seen an ocean, I mean, at that time, what was the general perception of orcas, of whales, by just the regular common person? Well, I think it's, it's definitely surrounded by mystery, a lot of fear. They were thought of as sea monsters. And even at the time, even up into the early 50s, the U.S. Navy was exterminating killer whales um, off the Icelandic coast um, and killing hundreds of them to, quote, protect the Icelandic fisheries from killer whales that were allegedly destroying fishing tackle and impinging upon fishing interests. But this was publicized in things like Time magazine, that these successful missions to kill killer whales. And if, you, if they were publishing that today, I mean, they'd be lambasted, but no one seemed to care back then. That leads me to, we mentioned it in our intro, the Marine Land of the Pacific. It was opened in 1954 in Newport Beach, California, and you, in your research you, you found that it was quoted as being billed as the world's first oceanarium. Can you perhaps set the scene for us and describe the layout and function of the park? I'm particularly interested in how it may resemble what we're used to now and when we think of an aquarium. Would it look a lot like the aquariums we see today? Well, um, just to clarify, Marineland was the second oceanarium in the world, uh, apparently. Uh, the first was Marine Studios, which was in, based in St. Augustine, Florida, which opened in 1938. And this particular facility was intended to meet the needs of Hollywood, who had this growing desire for underwater film footage. And it's, of course, easier to film in the confines of an aquarium tank 
underwater scenes rather than going out into the open ocean. So uh, Marine Studios had uh, dolphins, a number of you know marine species, and they opened it up to visitors. And based upon the success of Marine Studios, the, the group Oceanarium Incorporated decided to build a bigger and better facility on the Pacific coast, which became Marineland. And Marineland was built on, on the coast uh, in, in Palos Verdes, California, and it was designed by William Pereira, who was later designed the Los Angeles airport. And he expanded on this design of Marine Studios, which was basically a two-tank design. One tank had an amphitheater, and it was a round tank, and this is where the sea lion dolphin shows would be held. And the other was a large oval tank that would have held uh, thousands of different marine species. But I think what's important to note about Marineland and, and how it relates to aquariums today is that it's really one of the first that's kind of offering this individualized experience um, of ocean life. Um, they had over 358 little individualized windows that viewers could go and get this very individualized experience of entering an underwater world. It's very much like bringing this vivid ocean experience to a generation of suburbanites who, who, who really didn't understand or know of the wealth of the biological diversity of the ocean. But I will say, um, comparing them to aquariums of today, there wouldn't be as wide a diversity of species. Uh, basically, marine, marine land at its outset was collecting species from local waters. They had the Pacific Ocean in their backyard. So um, basically, local species, you wouldn't see as, as, as diverse as you might see in an aquarium today. Let's move on into discussing the second chapter of your thesis, which sort of ties into what you were just saying, capturing out of local waters. The second chapter of your thesis, it looks at the first orca capture. Maybe you could go ahead and tell us the story of that capture. Well, some time during the week of, of November 13th in 1961, a killer whale was sighted in Newport Harbor. And um, Newport Harbor, as some of you may know, it is still today very much a recreational boating place. And it's not where you go to see whales <laughs> at all. Um, but there was this killer whale in the harbor and it was drawing, it was quite a public curiosity, it was drawing actually thousands of people. And so um, the harbor master's office contacts uh, David Brown, who's the curator of mammals up at Marineland um, to come and check this out. So a party from Marineland comes down to inspect this animal and they conclude that it's a female because it has, one of, it has a smaller dorsal fin and they decide at that moment it's they're going to try and attempt to capture it. And so 6.30 the next morning, Frank Bacato, who is the, the uh, director of collections, along with his partner and godson, Frank Calandrino, um, arrive on their ship, the Geronimo, which has been kind of outfitted for capturing dolphins uh, and pilot whales. They arrive and attempt to capture the animal, and they realize that this animal is evading every attempt everything they throw at it. And it took them nine hours to eventually secure the animal next to the ship. And so um, they put a raft underneath it. They, uh, you know, blow up a raft, tow it to shore, bring it by truck to Marineland, which is about 30 miles up the coast, and bring her to Marineland. And they put her in the oval tank, which has thousands of different marine species inside it. And she starts, when she first enters the tank, she rams herself against the wall and then, you know, kind of 
becomes accustomed to it and um, just swims around. But by 8.30 the next morning, the scientists at Marineland report that she, quote, became violent and begins ramming herself repeatedly against the tank wall. Um, and then she swims into a flume way, which is a connecting pool between the two giant pools and, at Marineland and convulses and, and dies. What I think is important about this is that this whale, after she died, a necropsy was performed. And they found that she was very sick. She had, was suffering from uh, acute gastroenteritis. She was suffering from advanced um, heart disease and uh, uh, nematode infestations of her second and first stomach compartments. So this was a sick whale and would have died in the harbor. She had likely separated from the pod and would have died in the harbor anyway. But a number of factors, I, th I believe, hastened her death. Uh, especially with her experience at Marineland. Um, first of all, she's this nine-hour pursuit exhausted her. She's distressed. She's placed in the in the oval tank with over you know five thousand marine species, and they're creating a lot of sound, which we don't. Uh, it's not often audible to us, to humans, but these species are creating a lot of sound and bounce, it's bouncing off the tank wall. And killer whales have incredibly advanced auditory mechanisms. And she would have been very aware of all of this sound going on. It probably disoriented her. And finally, she has no perception of a tank. She's lived her entire life in the open ocean and has no perception of what you know, a tank is and is likely trying to escape. But like I said, the whale would have died anyway, but her experience with marine land was definitely hastened her death. If I'm understanding you right, is there perhaps this suggestion, or maybe your research has verified this, that Wanda had sort of come to this harbor already ill, and maybe that was the reason she was in the harbor in the first place? Yes, that's true. It's likely that she was too sick to keep up with her pod um, and chanced upon the harbor as a way of, you know, finding a quieter place to perhaps pass away. And of course, a harbor is, is, is not as, as rough as the open ocean might be. And that's probably what attracted her to it. But like I said, she would have died eventually. You know, I understand there's different groups of orcas in the North Pacific. Do we know which group or which type of orca Wanda was? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the differences between these groups of orcas in the North Pacific. Of course, there are three different subspecies of killer whales in the North Pacific. And those are residents, transients, and offshores. And the residents are probably the most widely studied because they're like, uh, you know, the Puget Sound whales, which are very popular, the J, K, and L pods up there near Seattle and Vancouver. And they typically hunt fish species. To, they'll follow the salmon runs and, and things of that nature. Transient orcas specialize in hunting marine mammals. They will hunt seals, dolphins, porpoises, and even um, larger baleen whales. Um, they'll often target whale calves um, and separating the mother off so they, they can hunt the baby. And then offshores are this group that scientists don't know much about, but um, they have determined a 2006 study determined that Wanda was actually an offshore killer whale. And this was, of course, noted by David Caldwell and uh, David Brown, who published a scientific paper on the Newport capture. And they noted that her teeth were worn down to the gums, which they thought 
oh, well, she's probably a very old animal. That's probably why that is. But since, you know, studies have been done that show that all of these offshore killer whales have these worn down teeth, they they exhibit this tooth wear. And they believe it's because they eat quite a bit of sharks. And shark skin, which it looks smooth, to, you know, when you look at it, but it's actually very rough. And as the shark is thrashing around in their mouth, it's wearing down their teeth. And even young um, offshore killer whales will have this tooth wear. But yeah, a a scientific study was performed that confirmed through genetic testing um, of her, of a piece of her jawbone that she is a part of this offshore group. So the Wanda's captured by Frank Brocato and Frank Calandrino. I understand they're associated with marine land of the Pacific in some way. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about these two. Well, uh, Frank Bricado was a fisherman and um, was actually retired at the time. But as marine land was getting started, they needed somebody who had the wherewithal and the skills to capture a variety of marine species. And Ken Norris, who was was a curator, an early curator at marine land, he heard about Frank Bricado and how he was this skillful fisherman, and he brought him out of retirement, and he brought along with him his godson, Frank Calandrino, who ended up uh, taking over for him after he retired from Marine Land and became the director of collections. So their first attempt to capture whale after Wanda also failed. Can you tell us the story of that case? So after Marine Land captured the very first killer whale, It was kind of regarded as a failed attempt because she did die, but they immediately drew up plans to capture another because they realized, okay, these animals can be captured. There's a real opportunity here for us to possibly, you know, market these whales um, as entertainers. And so they hear about all of these killer whales up in the Puget Sound area, up in Washington and, and British Columbia. And so Bricado and Calandrino, they take their ship up to Puget Sound and they sight uh, a mature male and a female off San Juan Island. And the whales are pursuing a harbor porpoise. And so the harbor porpoise is a small dolphin-like animal. And so it uses the boat as cover. And so Bricado takes this opportunity because the the killer whales are getting close to the boat. He lassos the female, but she immediately begins calling out to the male. And so the male begins ramming the boat in an effort to kind of um, aid her. And so Bricado immediately believes he's in danger. So he takes his 375 Magnum shotgun and shoots the male once. The male disappears. And the female, he, you know, he shoots it uh, 10 times, and she dies. And so he takes her all the way to Bellingham, where she's processed for dog food. So it's another, another failed capture. And did Marineland ever have any success in capturing an orca? No, they did not. But they did buy one in 1968. It was one of the orcas caught uh, at Puget Sound. They named them Orca, or Orky and Corky, uh, which were their two star, they became their two star killer whales in, in, in their killer whale shows. But actually what's interesting is that Marineland made an offer to purchase the second killer whale captured, Moby Doll. They made an offer to Marie Newman, who was the owner of the Vancouver Aquarium. They made an offer of $25,000 for the whale, but he said no, because he was making money off 
of displaying the whale himself. Did the capture of Wanda and maybe these other captures have any tangible effect on the public perception of whales? Well, uh, I will say that Wanda's capture had very little effect. She was never displayed publicly. She was never trained to perform. However, people did observe her capture, and many, you know, the newspaper reports claim that many people were on the side of the whale, uh, which they were able to sympathize, even though killer whales were demonized at the time, or, you know, villainized, they were able to sympathize with her and through this nine-hour capture. But more importantly, Wanda's capture really impacted the way that the marine entertainment industry viewed these animals. Um, it really sets in motion this idea that killer whales can be captured, albeit with great difficulty, but they can be captured and, and perhaps trained to perform. So this is really setting up this opportunity and, and setting up you know, the stage for these uh, large-scale captures that we see in the late 60s and early 70s. And maybe on the other side of that, what were the reactions of the scientific community upon Wanda's capture and subsequent death? Well, the scientific community really saw this as an amazing opportunity to collect data because previously the only way you could um, really uh, research killer whales was if you chanced upon one on the beach that had washed up dead or if an animal was stranded. Wanda's capture, um, even though she did die, she, they were able to observe her behavior in captivity for a little while, for a few hours. But really what they really thought was, was great was the fact that they could take measurements of a live whale and measure her brain, weigh her brain, right at the moment of her death. Because if you come upon a whale that's um, been dead for a while, you're not really getting an accurate repre representation of size because it's blown up because of all of the gases from the bacteria that are it's decomposing inside. So this is really a, a watershed moment for the scientific community. There's been this conjecture that Wanda's death was a suicide. Uh, can you explain what that means and tell us if you agree with that assessment through your research? Well, the idea that cetaceans uh, or marine mammals could commit suicide was really popularized by Rick O'Berry, who was a dolphin trainer at Miami Seaquarium in, in Florida. And he was training dolphins for Flipper, which was, of course, a very popular movie and TV series at the time. And he claims that this, way, this dolphin that he was working with, her name was Kathy, he claims that she died in his arms, and he argues that she committed suicide because dolphins can control their breath. You know, they can decide whether or not they want to breathe or not. And he took her, you know, going underwater and refusing to come up as an act of suicide. And so it really enters the public consciousness, and a lot of uh, animal rights publications have kind of perceived Wanda's death as being a suicidal, an, a suicidal episode. However, the problem with making that conjecture is that suicide is a term that really applies to an experience or, or something that is very intrinsically human. And when you apply that experience to an animal that is not human, you're really anthropomorphizing the animal here. Um, and applying a set of human experiences onto an animal's experience that we really don't know that much about. 
Now, if empirical evidence comes forth that animals can commit suicide, that's great. But we don't know enough at this moment that animals are committing suicide. And even if we did have information that proved that, it's really... It brings a lot of human connotations and human experiences into that, which, which is problematic in a lot of ways. Um, and we know that orcas and dolphins and a lot of marine mammals are self-aware. However, we need more empirical evidence to make that kind of conjecture. I want to follow up on the capture and the public response. And this may be outside of the scope of your research, but... I wanted to ask, was there any public resistance or organized resistance from emerging movements regarding animal protection, animal rights? Can you tell us if there was anything that communities or activist groups did to challenge the capture of orca whales? Well, uh, like I had mentioned before, uh, the newspapers reported that people were apparently cheering for Wanda at the time. It was actually the papers that named her Wanda. Uh, it wasn't marine land. Uh, and so people are cheering for her. I, I wouldn't say there's, there's no evidence of any kind of movements at that time. But as uh, subsequent killer whales are captured, then the movements start to crop up. You really see backlash coming from the Puget Sound captures by Ted Griffin in, in the late 60s and early 70s because these are large-scale, publicized captures. of He's capturing over, you know, 70 to 80 whales at one time. The whales are crying out. Um, it's very uh, an emotional type of experience. The whales seem to be in, in great distress. And it's really those captures that kind of influence government to get involved. And the Marine Mammal Protection Act is passed in 1972, which prohibited the capture of marine mammals um, within the United States. And it's really prompted by Ted Griffin's Pen Cove roundups up in Puget Sound. This is a bit of a sidebar, perhaps, but the capture you described by the two Franks up in Puget Sound, where they used a shotgun. Was that one publicized at all? I imagine that would have brought some backlash, but maybe I'm wrong. As far as I know, I have not found any publicized reports. And I can realize why they wouldn't want to. I mean, right. it, it's not exactly the most, um, it's not a happy tale. It's pretty tragic. Yeah. But no, not that I know of. I want to move on a little bit, but also to hopefully understand a little bit more about the ORCA's association with the Pacific Northwest. In your work, the paper that you shared with us, you, you bring up the historian Jason Colby, who argued that during the period of live killer whale capture, which was in the late 60s and early 1970s, Colby writes that ORCA bodies were not only commodified through capture and sale, but also inscribed physically and metaphorically with shifting values of the Pacific Northwest. I was hoping if you could unpack that a little bit for us and tell us if you if you agree with Colby's argument. I do. What he's talking about really here is the perception change that's happening at this time because as killer whales are brought into captivity, some die in the capture process, and the captors will attempt to hide this, but the, the bodies end up washing up on the beach, and it's highly publicized. And he talks about how they're pierced by fishermen's bullets prior to perceptions changing because people consider them a pest. They're harpooned and netted by these, these aquariums and then, of course, prodded and dissected by scientists who are 
really seeing this as an opportunity to collect data on these animals that had previously they knew very little about. And Wanda's capture fits into this narrative, although the impact of her capture really, like I'd, I had mentioned before, is not about public perceptions generally. It's more about how the marine entertainment industry begins to perceive these animals and begins to commodify them. I wanted to ask, what is the relationship between the marine entertainment industry and the scientific community? I guess I'm curious to know how that began, the origins of that relationship, and maybe some of the transformations, if you could share some of those with us, too. Of course. This begins, I think, at Marine Studios, uh, which is, again, I mentioned before um, in, in Florida, because it started out as both a research facility and a marine park. And early oceanariums, um, scientists and the industry were working hand in hand because the industry seeing these animals as something, oh, we can train dolphins, whales to perform. We can, you know, make money off of, of, of uh, uh, displaying them. But scientists are saying this is the perfect way for us to collect data on these animals that we know very little about. So at Marine Studios and at Marineland, um, they're conducting a lot of tests on these animals and, of course, realizing better animal care techniques. And uh, you see this at SeaWorld today. SeaWorld regularly publishes different papers on killer behavior and things like this. So you, you see this, this very intertwined relationship between scientists and the industry. I wonder if you could answer for us whether this tendency to try to commodify orca whales, was that restricted to the United States or was this an international development as well? Or were Americans really the first to tr really see the, the potential to use whales for entertainment and to profit from their viewing? It's definitely, as far as I know, only in America this is going on. In other parts of the world, uh, killer whales, like off the coast of Japan, were hunted for meat. And it wasn't, I don't think they were really thought of as something that you could market for entertainment purposes. They were really thought of as something, you know, too difficult to capture, too dangerous. They were never really hunted large scale for oil like the large baleen whales were during the height of the, the whaling industry or the sperm whales um, because they were considered just too much trouble to, mm -hmm. ca to capture. But it's, yeah, it's really only in America that you see this commodification beginning. It, it strikes me uh, very interesting to see how the movement of whales being a source to extract resources from, like, such as the whaling industry, to becoming like a carnival animal, um, not to downgrade whales, but the environment that they were put into, extracting them whole for entertainment purposes, uh, I think is just a striking transformation in just several decades. But you mentioned it earlier. Were there any restrictions that the U.S. government placed upon capturing or killing orcas during this period of time? Prior to the uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act, no. no. So it was basically you go out to the ocean, if you can capture one, great. You know, you've got it. It's yours. Uh, which is really interesting if you think about it, because now we have all these regulations on, placed on wildlife and, you know, hunting permits are needed if you ever want to take wildlife. or um, So it, it was really kind of a free-for-all moment, I would say. Can you remind us when the Marine Protection Act was passed? 1972, signed by Nixon, which right. is interesting. 
Well, thinking about your research and your background, you, you didn't do your undergrad in any sort of scientific field. So approaching scientific history, what are some of the challenges you've had with that? Well, I will say that I've always had this interest in animals and uh, specifically an interest in, in, in whales. Uh, I remember my mother had this book, uh, Jacques Cousteau's, it was a whaling coffee book on whaling and whales and uh, you know the whaling industry, and it was totally taken by that. I listened to a lot of Judy Collins growing up, and she was, of course, one of the first musical artists to incorporate whale song. She incorporated its, uh, I believe, humpback whales singing to the background of this this old whaling song, this Irish whaling song, Farewell to Tarwathi. And it was very taken by by the animals themselves. And I grew up watching nature shows, so very much not a scientist, but very much the interest was there. And, um, of course, working at Farm Sanctuary, I was very concerned about animal suffering. And is, is there a way for me to kind of influence the discussions that we have about animals and animality without being a scientist and having to go through that kind of training? Uh, I have no background, of course, in, in, scientific, in the scientific field. But uh, the interest was there, and I initially began the master's program thinking I was going to study extinctions because I had read this book by Joel Greenberg on the extinction of the passenger pigeon and, uh, in the United States, and very you know, taken by the fact like, oh my gosh, historians can write about animals. It, it just had never occurred to me that that was a, a possibility. So I kind of took it from there. And so have you, have you had any specific challenges? You know, as historians, most of the topics, at least I can speak for myself and Ryan, you know, we have some personal experience with a lot of the things we've researched, uh, labor, music. But uh, for you approaching this um, topic that you, you obviously have a strong passion for, I guess, have you had to do any additional research into the scientific side to, uh, you know, for instance, understand these different types of orcas? Definitely. Um, what I'm trying to do in a lot of ways is apply a modern scientific understanding of killer whales to the historical experience of orcas, the you know historical orcas. And I have uh, had to. I've I've met a number of times with uh, a marine biologist at PSU, Debbie Duffield who specializes in, you know, whales and dolphins and, and, and things of that nature. And we've had many conversations, you know, of me just confirming things, you know, that maybe I, I think are true based upon the science, but I, I, my background isn't necessarily in that. So she's, she's been a great help. You know, it's, this has been um, a really fascinating discussion with you. We've talked the past few months we've been doing this research, but it's been really great to have you down here at Beyond Footnotes to discuss it on air. Thanks for coming down. Thank you so much. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about the music in this episode on our show page at kpsu.org. We'd like to thank our listeners for their support over this past academic year. I think I speak for both Ryan and I when I say it's been a great pleasure to create these episodes for you every other week. We'd also like to specifically thank the History Department, and in particular, Andrea Janda, Tim Garrison, and Catherine McNair for their support. Beyond Footnotes couldn't have happened without you. If you want to hear past episodes of Beyond Footnotes, you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud.com slash Beyond Footnotes. We're also on a number of podcasting networks, including Stitcher, Google Play, and of course, we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Beyond Footnotes. 
Signing off, I'm Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Have a great day.